Second Chronicles chapter 30, <clears throat> if you'll join me there. As we continue our study through Second Chronicles together, we're looking now at the reign of King Hezekiah and certainly probably, if not up there on par with King David, one of the greatest kings in the history of um, the Jewish people. David certainly probably always is certainly up there, maybe the top of our list. Certainly he's the one who got the title from God of being a man after God's own heart. But I think if you were to give somewhere in that top three there, you'd have to get Hezekiah probably in there as well, because it's just amazing to see the work of God's spirit that happened through Hezekiah's life and, and just what God used Hezekiah to do really just to bring, I believe, not just the spiritual reform, but it really genuinely seems to be a record, of, I think, of sort of a, a spiritual revival, a, a renewal among the people of God, an awakening of the spirit that takes place. Last time in chapter 20, 29, as we looked at that together where Hezekiah came to the throne, we saw the first thing on his agenda was to go through and to restore worship to the temple of God. Remember, God's temple had been neglected and had more been neglected. It had actually just been uh, used really as just a place of rubbish and they had just stored things there that weren't of the things of God. The land was in a horrible condition. Uh, and yet, despite that, God used Hezekiah to clear out the temple and to restore worship to the house of God. And in a matter of uh, really less than a month, uh, they were back again instituting temple worship. The people were celebrating. They were excited about the Lord. The sacrificial system was taking place once again. And there was great joy as the people were bringing sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord and it tells us that all the people, the last verse of chapter 29, uh, rejoice that God had prepared them since the events took place so suddenly. So again, just sort of a picture here as we're in chapter 29 and 30 as well as we go into it tonight. Really a great demonstration of what does it look like when there's just a, a, a move of God and just a, a move of God's spirit that begins to happen amongst a group of people and and that typically a lot of times is something that happens out of a time of great darkness that when the conditions spiritually and morally are really bad sometimes that's what beckons just a merciful act of god to just by his grace bring a move of the power of his holy spirit to bring great revival and spiritual renewal so we saw the temple worship restored last time and now as they come into chapter 30 hezekiah continues in his godly leadership now to seek to restore uh, the Passover celebration, one of the most critical feasts in the nation of Israel that had been neglected. It tells us, chapter 30, verse 1, that Hezekiah sent to all the people of Judah <clears throat> and also wrote letters to Ephraim and to Manasseh. Now, keep in mind, that's up in the north, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. Now, again, uh, the Bible tells us, Leviticus chapter 23 and other places in the Old Testament of these different feasts, these festivals. Uh, some of them were a week long. Some of them were just a day long celebration. Uh, they were times, religious, if you would, holidays, we might say, celebrations, times to commemorate and remember the things about God as a people where they would celebrate the ways of God, the things that God had done among them. 
And three of those celebrations, three of those feasts were mandatory for all able-bodied males. Uh, If they were able to be there, they were required. The others were in some ways voluntary, but three of them were required. And the three that were required, we know, were Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Uh, These were required feasts. The Feast of Passover, if you remember from Exodus chapter 12, that was that celebration, very crucial to the spiritual lives of God's people, where they celebrated how the wrath of God passed over their lives and brought great deliverance for them out of slavery and bondage of Egypt and brought them out of that condition of servitude and bondage and slavery and delivered them out from under this harsh taskmaster and rulership of Pharaoh and brought them out in deliverance and brought them into the promised life and ultimately the promised land that God intended for them. And so Passover was really a commemoration, a celebration of God's deliverance. Of, of a move of salvation. Again, the Passover lamb, remember, it was the blood that was applied on the doorposts and the lentils, in some ways a very picturesque vertically and horizontally, a symbolic picture of the work of Christ. And, and that if they applied that blood of the innocent lamb as a substitute over their doorpost, that if they stood inside of the house where the blood was applied, that is the angel came through, the death angel bringing the judgment of God, that death and that consequence would pass over them. That's why it was called Passover, because the blood would be the indication that they belonged to the Lord and were in right relationship with him. And of course, it it pictures the work of salvation that comes to us through Jesus. Uh, Paul, even writing to the Corinthians, says in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians that Christ is our Passover. Uh, He ultimately is the Lamb of God, the final Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. Uh, And through the blood of Jesus Christ, as we trust in it, and that blood, in a sense, is applied over our lives and wonder the covering of the blood of Christ through our trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, the wrath of God passes over our lives, and we're no longer appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation. So Passover was a very, very critical celebration for them because in a lot of ways, it was the root and the basis of their spiritual deliverance as God brought them deliverance out of slavery and into the promised life that he intended for them. And this had been neglected for a long period of time. And so Hezekiah now, as he's moved by the spirit to bring this spiritual awakening among the people, God's using him as an instrument. It's upon his heart. Listen, we have got to get back to celebrating Passover. We have got to return to this critical remembrance of God's deliverance, of God's salvation. That's the root of our love for God and our dedication to God, that God delivered us. God saved us. And I think in some ways, when there's a real spiritual work of renewal and revival happening, uh, really, that should be something that we see ourselves, either individually or collectively as what we call the church, wanting to return back to. A real celebration and appreciation once again of how Christ, our Passover, has saved us. You know, isn't it so true when you first met Jesus Christ? I hope it was like that for you. I know it was for me. Man, there was a wonder about salvation. And just that reality that your sins were forgiven and you finally knew that you knew that you understood that that guilt was removed and God delivered you from the bondage of 
you know, sin ruling over your life and the slavery, the things that you were stuck in, and God brought you out of that, man, you were excited to just think about Jesus' salvation. If nothing else, you wanted to go to church and worship just because you were so excited about Jesus' salvation. You didn't need a whole lot of other reasons. You just were, man, I just want to go, and you were excited about the Lord. You wanted to just go celebrate. And I think when there's a real move of God's Spirit, that, that kind of Psalm 51 thing, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. And you kind of find that renewal of excitement starting to happen in your heart again towards Christ and the cross and these basic fundamental things of your spiritual experience and salvation. What's interesting is as Hezekiah is now instituting this, it says in verse one here that he writes a letter and sends it out as an invite to encourage people to come to the house of the Lord there at Jerusalem, to the temple, to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. But take notice, as he sends out this invite, Hezekiah is the king in Judah, the southern kingdom. Remember, this is the time of the divided kingdom. You have Judah, the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom. And there's been a lot of conflict between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Even great wars, we looked at last time in our study together, over 100,000 people were killed in one war that took place because of the civil conflict between the north and the south. But do you notice what Hezekiah does? It says, as he sends out this invitation to come worship the Lord and celebrate Passover and get back to the root of their spiritual lives, it says he sent not to just all Judah, but to all Israel and to Judah even to those in the north, to the area of Ephraim and Manasseh. I like this. No bitterness at heart. He's not holding the grudge. There's no animosity. As he thinks about the Passover celebration and what it means in God's forgiveness, he can't possibly think about holding unforgiveness towards his other brothers up there in the north. And there had been a lot of issues between them, a lot of hurtful, nasty stuff that had happened. But when there's a work of God's spirit happening, I tell you folks, that is another thing that will be a very clear indication. When there's a move of God's spirit that begins to happen in your heart, when there's a move of God's spirit that begins to happen among God's people, all these petty issues of grievances and differences, we set that stuff aside because there's a wonder about the forgiveness of God and the love of God that makes us say, you know what, look, there shouldn't be division between us. We need to get together and love each other and worship the Lord together and and all that kind of stuff just gets set aside because that's fleshly stuff. That's carnal. The bitterness and the division and even the, again, denominational divisions. I mean, those things start to go away when there's a real move of God's spirit. I don't care if you're, you know, Baptist or Methodist or Calvary Chapel light. Let's let's do the work of the kingdom together. (laughs) Ultimately, when we get to heaven, we're going to all be around the same throne worshiping Jesus when the fundamentals are agreed upon. Uh, And so those differences kind of get set aside when there's a move of the Spirit. I think it's very beautiful to see him inviting both Israel and Judah. It says, verse 2, for the king and his leaders and all the assembly at Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover. Notice in the second month, the Holy Spirit specifies that. They're keeping it now in the second month. For they could not keep it at the regular time, which would be the first month that was when it was prescribed to happen according to scripture when god instituted the passover they were to celebrate it traditionally on the first of the the first month of the calendar year for them their religious calendar but it says here that they're celebrating it now in the second month because they weren't able to keep it at the regular time 
because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves, nor the people gathered together at Jerusalem, and the matter pleased the king and all the assembly. So again, because of the first month of the year, which was the traditional time to celebrate the Feast of Passover, this religious holiday, they weren't ready to celebrate it. The temple was in disrepair. The priests hadn't got themselves right with the Lord. They weren't consecrated. They weren't ready. And because they weren't, in a sense, circumstantially ready to do it at the first month of the year, instead of waiting all the way around the calendar again until the very next year, they said, look, let's celebrate it on the second month. Our heart intent is still the same. We, we want to celebrate what we want to celebrate. Let's not get hung up on what the calendar is. Let's not get hung up on what the day of the year is about. And remember, if you, if you remember from all the way back in Numbers chapter 9, God had even given a gracious provision, Numbers chapter 9 records this, where if a Jew was unable because either A, they were circumstantially unclean, that is, they weren't ceremonially prepared, maybe they had touched a dead body or some of the different things that would make them defiled momentarily where they were ceremonially unclean to go to the house of the Lord, if they were ceremonially unclean and not prepared personally, or if they were circumstantially inhibited, that is, they were traveling or they just were too far away and they could not get to Jerusalem, God made a provision that they could celebrate it on the next month, Passover. And so Hezekiah, knowing what the word of God says, look, God gave us a gracious provision. We should utilize that instead of waiting till all the way till next year to celebrate. Now, again, I like this as well because here's what happened. The spirit of God is moving and so they are more concerned about the heart of the issue rather than these little logistical details of, no, 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 no. We have to celebrate that on this day because this is the day to celebrate that, right? I mean, some people are like that with birthdays. We, you know, we have got to celebrate. You were born on the third. We have got to celebrate. Well, I mean, we, we can't. We're no, no, we've got to celebrate on the third. I don't care if you're born on the third. I could celebrate your birthday on the fifth. Right. I mean, we had the kids, you know, have a, a birthday party on the day it was convenient for us. That's when they had the birthday party. <laughs> it was within the time frame. The whole purpose was whether we're celebrating your birthday on the actual day itself or not. We're still celebrating your birthday if we're having the party on Saturday. Right. Well, same thing. I mean, from God's heart, it, God was concerned. What are you celebrating? Are you celebrating Passover with the right heart attitude? And God even gave them this gracious permission in a sense saying, here's the prescribed day to celebrate it. But if you can't celebrate on that day, then celebrate it on the second month. If you need to celebrate it on the second month. Look, great reminder, because sometimes even Christians, let alone people in the world, get all hung up in this stuff. Well, what's the actual day that Jesus was born on? And when do you people celebrate Christmas? And look, I know at the end of the day, I know what I'm celebrating at Christmas. The specific day isn't that critical to me. This is the day we set aside to celebrate it. Look, at least I ain't chasing Santa. I'm serving Jesus. You know what I mean? I just, I'm celebrating the birth of Christ and what it means to me and the heart behind it is what matters most to God. And again, I think this is just a wonderful thing to remember. Paul ultimately, as he's writing to the Romans, talks about how you know one man esteems one day above another, another man esteems every day the same. And he said, look, don't get caught up in this stuff. Days and dates and you know times of the week. Just what, what matters most? What matters most is that our heart is in the right place and we're worshiping the Lord. And it's amazing how when the spirit of God begins to move, all these kind of little you know, legalistic, 
ritualistic little traditional things that we get so hung up in. And sometimes we esteem the traditions of men more than the commands of God themselves. That kind of stuff just gets set aside. Again, it has its value, but it should never supersede the value. What mattered most is, hey, instead of waiting till next year and being legalistic, let's just celebrate now. The second month, let's, let's celebrate Passover. And it says this whole matter pleased everyone. They come together at Jerusalem. So verse five, they resolved, it says, to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan, that is from Beersheba in the south all the way up to Dan in the north, that they should come to keep the Passover of the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem. Since they had not done it, notice they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. In other words, what the Bible's telling us is they had been neglecting God's ways. They had not done this for a long time in the prescribed manner. And when spiritual apathy and when people, you know, kind of cool off spiritually and they begin to maybe disobey the Lord or rebel for a season, that's what happens. Spiritual neglect starts to happen. People don't go to the house of the Lord for a long time. And sometimes that happens. They haven't just they haven't even been to the house of the Lord in a long time, or they haven't read their Bible in a long time. They haven't prayed in a long time. And, and we just start to neglect some of these spiritual disciplines of what it means to walk with the Lord and serve the Lord. And here, that's what these people had done. It says they hadn't kept the Passover. They hadn't done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. There had been spiritual neglect. And sometimes we can all fall into that. But when a move of God's spirit starts to happen, guess what we do? We stop neglecting the ways of God. And we return to the things of the Lord. Like Jesus said, you know, that, that we've left our first love. He told the, the, the church there in Revelation chapter 2, the church of Ephesus, and he says for them to repent and to return and to do again the first works. And when a work of God's spirit begins to move powerfully, that's what we do. We, we stop neglect spiritually and we get back to the ways of God. So verse 6 says, so the runners went throughout all Israel. Interesting, they sent out runners. They couldn't just send out emails or social media. You had to send out runners in that day. <laughs> hey, we're going to have a Passover celebration. Get some guys with endurance, get them a new set of sneakers and send them running hundreds of miles all the way up into the north. Tell them to get down here to Jerusalem. So the runners went out, right? They're bringing the announcement, the invitation to all Judah and Jerusalem with the letters from the king and his leaders. And they spoke according to the command of the king, children of Israel. Return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. And do not be like your fathers, your brethren, who trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, so that he gave them up to desolation as you see. Now, he says, verse 8, do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord Enter his sanctuary, which he sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. So they send out these runners with the word of the king, with the command of the king, to go and to speak to the people to respond to what God was calling them to do and what they should have been doing all along, but had been neglecting. And again, I look at these runners going out and they go out with the invitation. They go out with the word of the Lord. 
They go out to bring the message and the news to everyone to give them an opportunity then to respond. And in some ways, they look at these runners described here in verse six, they, they honestly remind me of really what we ought to be doing as well. We are to be going out, whether to wherever God would send us, and we are like these runners to be the messengers who go out and bring the word of the king. We bring out the invitation of the Lord. We bring out the word of the Lord, the command of God to people to give them an opportunity to understand what God's asking of them and to give them an opportunity to respond. You know, the Bible tells us how you know, beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And that's what our job is. Our job is to take the message of the king and the word of the Lord, whether it's the gospel or the word of God or whatever it may be, and to bring it to people, to go out and to bring it. We can't control how they respond, but what we are is delivery people. We're messenger boys and messenger girls to go out under the command of the king and to bring these things to people, calling them sometimes to return, as he says, verse six, to the Lord. And sometimes people need that exhortation. Hey, you need to return to the Lord. You've been away from the Lord. You need to return to the Lord. Get back in right relationship with the Lord. He wants you to come home if you've been a prodigal and distant, he says. And he says, don't be stubborn and like your fathers, he says, who trespassed. And, you know, don't continue in your rebellion and continue in the wrong ways. Once God's shown you're in a wrong path, he says, God's inviting you, return. He's giving you an invitation to come back. How wonderful. You know, you read all throughout the word of God and you begin to recognize, especially a lot in the Old Testament, how many times God says the word return. You kind of get the indication we tend to wander a lot because <laughs> a lot of times God's saying return, return, return. I mean, you kind of get the idea that we need to return a lot. But God always offers the opportunity to do that. How wonderful. I mean, that God doesn't just write us off, that he always keeps being the one to initiate returning into right relationship with him. And here, again, God says to the people, I'm inviting you, come back, get back in right relationship. He says, return to the Lord. Don't be resistant. I mean, look at his language in verse eight. He says, don't be stiff necked. I mean, that's such a picturesque statement, you know, stiff necked. The idea is, you know, somebody just who, you know, just stiffens up their neck in, in a way whereby they are not going to let somebody turn their head one way or the other, just going to be stubborn, stiff necked. That's the idea is that we wouldn't be like that stubborn and resistant, stiff-necked, but instead, verse eight, what's the opposite of that? But that we would yield, he says, yourselves to the Lord. And that's the exact opposite there. Lord, I don't wanna be stubborn. I don't wanna be resistant and rebellious and stiff-necked. I just wanna surrender. I just wanna yield myself over to you. And you know, that is all God really desires and needs of us is that we would just yield. We don't have to make the changes in our life. We can't even bring the changes in our life. See, the reality is this. You can't change your heart. If you haven't noticed that yet, and if you've been trying that, let me spare you a lot more heartache and frustration. You'll never be able to change your heart because the Bible says that our hearts, Jeremiah 17, are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And who can even know our own hearts? They're that desperately wicked and sinful innately. But then the very next statement in Jeremiah also says that God searches our heart. And I'm thinking, oh, God, I, gosh, man, Lord, I can't even understand my own heart. But God, you're willing to search my heart? And God says, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to go in that dirty cavern. And I'm willing to go in there and even change your heart. God, how many times in his word says, I can take away a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. 
And see, here's the deal. God gives us the invitation. God speaks to us the truth. God calls us not to be stubborn, but to just yield ourselves over to him and his will. And what his word says is true. And if we change our mind, which is what repentance is, a change of mind, if you change your mind, God will change your heart. God won't change your mind. He lets you have free will. But if you and I change our mind, then God can change our heart. But if we don't change our mind, we're not going to be able to change our own hearts. So it's very crucial to recognize God gives us the invitation. He calls us to respond. But then we must be the ones not to be stubborn and stiff-necked, but to yield ourselves to the Lord. And he says, when you do that, notice when the Spirit calls them to do that, he says, and enter the sanctuary and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away, that you may bring yourself out from under the displeasure. They were under the judgment of God for their rebellion. He says, for if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who lead them captive. Again, they were going to go into captivity as the consequence of their disobedience and rebellion. But even when they went into their captivity, which was the experience of the consequence of their sin, and God doesn't always promise to spare us from the consequences of our sin. Because the truth of the matter is, is sometimes if God doesn't allow us to experience the consequence of our wrong decisions and our sin, we'll just be more prone to just go back to that sin. You know, there's something very valuable about why you spank a child. And let me simplify it. Bad decision, painful consequence. Painful consequence says, I don't want to make another bad decision. I remember when I made that bad decision, painful consequence. Well, God's a good father. And so God, I love you. I forgive you. We're in right relationship. But God may need to allow the painful consequence still as a way to keep us from returning and resorting to the bad decision of that sin or wrong habit or whatever we did wrong. So they were still going to go into captivity. But look what he says. Even when you go into captivity, you'll be treated with compassion when you're led away captive so that you may come back to this land. Now God's speaking of restoration for the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. In essence, God is simply saying, look, even in the midst of being disciplined for your wrongdoing, the Lord says, just fully yield yourself to me, lean into the consequence. Don't even try and resist it. Just fully lean into the consequence. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He will make it way less worse than it even could have been. And you'll find compassion and mercy and grace and you'll return into right relationship with the Lord. And the favor of the Lord will come back upon your life in a glorious way to where even as you go through the consequences, it will be much more easy than it would have been if you're being stubborn and resistant and trying to somehow escape the difficulty because of the situation maybe you created from some bad choices in your life. So verse 10 says the runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun. But notice what happened when they brought the word of the Lord. They laughed at them and mocked them. So as the invitation went out spiritually, hey, return to the Lord. Come back to God's house. Come celebrate Passover with us. God's inviting you to respond to him in this way. A great number of those who heard the messengers bring that word to them, it says, laughed and mocked at the word of God. 
And the same happens today when we share the gospel message of salvation with people or we bring to people the word of God. There are going to be times when some people will just harden their hearts and they're just going to dismiss it. They're going to make light of it. They're going to think that's foolish and they're going to mock and persecute and ridicule the word of God or the gospel message. But verse 11 says, nevertheless, some notice some from Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. So notice different responses. Some laughed and mocked and ridiculed the truth of God, but others, some actually humbled themselves. They said, you know what? Hey, that you're right. And we've been wrong and we're ready for a change of heart. And God's willing to receive us back and to forgive us and to restore our spiritual lives. So some ridiculed and dismissed and laughed. Others responded with humility and willingness and receptivity, even as the same happens as we go out with God's message as well. Different responses will always take place. Verse 12, speaking of those who humbled themselves and came back to Jerusalem, it says also the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. Now notice verse 12. I love the way that is recorded there by the Holy Spirit. The hand of God was upon those who had humbled themselves to give them singleness of heart to obey God's word and to submit to God's authority. Again, back to what I just said a few moments ago. Do you notice how they got the heart condition they did? It says right there, God, by his hand upon them, God gave them singleness of heart. God gave them a heart of devotion. God gave them a heart of dedication. God moved in their hearts. It was a move of God upon their heart that gave them this single-hearted devotion to God and to the Lord. And when there's a move of God's spirit, that's what happens, folks. We can't create or generate a revival. We can't bring to pass a revival in our own life or bring to pass a revival. And, and sometimes I think, you know, we, we have to be careful because we pray for revival and we talk about revival. And then sometimes people, you know, we just, these are the five keys to revival. And if you just do these five things, you confess your sin and you do this and that, then a revival is going to happen. I, from what I've seen, again, and I certainly don't have the corner on the market and no much more than a Happy Meal, honestly, but... What I see is that when there's a sovereign move of God's spirit, God does something in the hearts of people where something phenomenal happens. I believe it's God's heart to want to do it. I believe we should pray for it and to all manner certainly do everything we can to give God a chance to work by yielding and submitting ourselves. But when I read here, something powerful happened. It says the hand of God came upon the people and gave them a changed heart. God gave them this single-hearted devotion where all of a sudden they were passionate and excited about the Lord and wanting to obey God and his word in a way like never happened before. I think we need to pray. God, put your hand on us. Put your hand on us. Give us that kind of a heart, Lord, and that we might see it in our lives and in the lives of others. Now, many people, it says, in a very great assembly gathered at Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. You notice a lot of times in the Old Testament you see these two uh, celebrations spoken of synonymously, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's because they, 
butted right up against one another. The Passover celebration was something that happened initially, and then right behind it was the week-long celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was basically when they would commemorate the removing of leaven. Remember when they were taken out of the land quickly in haste, they didn't have time to put leaven in their bread for it to rise. They took out unleavened bread, but leaven in the Bible is always a picture and a type of sin, something that permeates everything else that it influences. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread in some ways was a time where they would go through and they would take all the leaven out of their home and rid their homes of leaven. And of course, it's a beautiful picture. Passover pictures in many ways very clearly salvation through Christ and the Feast of Unleavened Bread pictures the purging of all sin and seeking to get sin out of our lives and out of our homes and removing what's not proper in front of God. And those two things should happen hand in hand. When somebody comes to Christ, the Bible says those who name the name of Christ, let them depart from iniquity. And so when we come to Jesus, we should want to rid the leaven, if you would, from our lives. We should want to get things that are not pleasing to God and sinful out of our lives. That should be a natural outcome of the work of God's spirit happening in us. When we get right with the Lord, whether it's initially in salvation or even when there's kind of this reviving work of God's spirit that happens sometimes, one of the byproducts should be that we want to get right with God and get what's sin and wrong out of our lives. Lord, I, I just want to get these things that are just unleavened and unhealthy out of my life, out of my family, out of my home, whatever it may be. And look what they do. Verse 14, they arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, that is to other gods. And they took away all the incense altars and cast them in the brook Kidron. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month. So again, they're, they're ridding themselves of that which would not be pleasing to God as they're celebrating. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed. There was a sense of shame and guilt because they had been neglecting even as the spiritual leaders to lead the way in serving God. They were ashamed and sanctified themselves and brought the burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. They stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God, and the priests sprinkled the blood and received from the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves. They had not prepared themselves spiritually. And these were the priests, the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders among the people. Therefore, the Levites had charge of the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them to the Lord for a multitude of the people, verse 18, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Issachar, and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, may the good Lord provide atonement for the people who prepares his heart to seek God. The Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary, and it says, verse 20, the Lord listened, the idea is God accepted the prayer of Hezekiah and healed the people. So you have this very interesting scenario. The people, they want to celebrate Passover. They want to worship the Lord. They want to participate in this time of, of seeking the Lord and celebrating Passover in their worship but they're not ceremonially clean. They're not prepared properly according to the regulations of the Old Testament that were given to them as a worshiper. 
But notice, Hezekiah recognizes, look, God's highest desire is that your heart would be in the right place, in the right condition, even more than he's concerned about ceremonial observance. So Hezekiah here, instead of rejecting the people and saying, look, you're not ceremonially clean, so I know you want to worship the Lord, but sorry. Uh, you're not ready, you're not able. Instead of doing that, what he sees is, you know what God's greatest desire is, is that people's hearts are in the right place and that they genuinely have a heart that's inclined towards the Lord. So he says, look, don't worry about the fact that you are not ceremonially prepared. Eat of the Passover, participate in the celebration. And then he just prays that God would be gracious to them because he knows that God's more about grace than he is about ritual and law and legalism and he says lord you're a good god he says provide atonement forgive the people lord they're not totally in a right condition the way they're supposed to be but they want to worship you lord they want to seek you you see their heart you prepare their heart and it says that as he prays this the lord listened to hezekiah and healed the people and again i love to see god represented in the scripture as a relational God, way more than he is a God of regulations and rituals and requirements, that what God's highest concern is, is not little ceremonial observance and keeping ritual and regulation as the highest priority, but God's highest concern is, is somebody's heart in the right place? Because see, God speaks negatively about the other side. Remember, God also says at times that there are people who honor him with their lips. They're going through the motions, but their heart's far from him. And so God cares about the heart condition. So be very careful when sometimes your highest concern is keeping all the rules and regulations and rituals and all these kind of things, and that's your highest priority rather than being concerned about what's going on inside of somebody's heart. And sometimes we can be really guilty of that. You know, we want to kind of, you, you need to clean yourself up before you come into the church. Well, you, your life's a mess. Well, once your life's not a mess, then you can come worship with us. No, how about we say God's into getting people who are in a mess <laughs> in a right heart condition. And maybe they're a little bit messy still. You know, maybe they're a little bit, if you would, rough around the edges. Fine. Come into the house of God, rough around the edges. Jesus is a great physician. <laughs> is a hospital here anyway. And just because we're in good, perfect health and think we're an Arnold Schwarzenegger Christian, let's be careful that we're not kind of brushing people aside who are just a little rough around the edges, but their heart's in the right place. And they're really trying to you know, get right with the Lord and seek the Lord. And sometimes we got to be careful of our own kind of hyper fanaticism with ritual and legalism. And I love Hezekiah's heart here. He's He's seeing the spirit of grace and that God's concern is about that and God honors his prayer as he asks for this gracious provision for the people to celebrate. So it says, verse 21, the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. There's great joy happening. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord accompanied by, look at that, the worship leaders all like this, by loud instruments. Wait a minute. Is that actually in there? The Holy Spirit actually said worship can be loud? Yeah. God's not going, turn it down. God's going, turn it up. I like it. (laughs) 
You go to a football game. Shh, come on, quiet down. You people in this crowd are getting a little too loud. You're going to mess up the defense, right? People go to stadiums, and they cheer with enthusiasm. There's passion. There's excitement. You go to a concert. Do they keep it real low at the concert? No, it's loud, right? Again, when you're passionate about something, it says here the people were singing, and they were using accompaniment of loud instruments, Again, the idea is just there was a passion to it. Again, I'm not saying there's not a, a balance in those kind of things. I realize we're not trying to put on a rock concert and have a spiritual pep rally in a mosh pit in the church. But there's nothing wrong with passion and enthusiasm for the Lord and allowing ourselves to feel and experience that full expression of, of just love and excitement for the Lord here. There's gladness. They're singing to the Lord using loud instruments to praise and to honor God. And Hezekiah, verse 22, says, gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught, notice what the Levites are doing, they taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And they ate throughout all the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. So again, you notice kind of these, again, if I could say these characterizing marks of this record we have in the Old Testament here of sort of a spiritual revival just breaking out among the people. There's excitement about worship. People want to worship the Lord. It's not, oh, I'm not into that worship thing. I just, that's singing. People are excited. They want to sing to God. They want to praise God. They want to express their love for the Lord. There's praise, excitement among the people when God's spirit is moving. It says that the Spiritual leaders and the Levites, they're teaching the good knowledge of the Lord. And I get the impression that people want to be taught the good knowledge of the Lord. People want to learn about God. What's one of the ways that you know that there's a work, a spiritual revival and renewal happening? I'll tell you another way. People want to learn about God. They're excited. I know when I first got saved, nobody had to tell me study the Bible. I wanted to learn the Bible. <laughs> I wanted to know about God. I was excited about God. And anytime God's spirit kind of quickens my heart in a fresh way, I find one of the things that comes with that is I want to just, I want to know more about the Lord. I want to learn his word and understand his ways. And there's this, again, the reviving, if you would, of the teaching of the word of God and the learning about God. And it says as well that the people also, verse 22, were doing what? They were making confession. They were acknowledging their sins. They didn't want to not be right with God. They weren't hiding things. There was a confession happening among the people of God. And one of the marks of, again, a spiritual revival is confession of sin. People don't want to kind of keep things in secret. They want to bring them into the light. God, I want to confess this. I want to get it right with you. That's another mark of when this is happening. Verse 23 says, And the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast, watch this, another seven days. And they kept it another seven days with gladness. So they're having such a great time celebrating for a week long. They, at the end of it, say, you know what? Let's, let's not go home yet. Let's stay here at the house of God and with all the people of the Lord and keep worshiping and singing and studying the word of God and just celebrating the Lord. They, again, keep in mind, I mean, these people are away from their homes, from their fields, from their businesses, and they're not saying, oh, yeah, but what? The Lord's their top priority. They are just so excited about the Lord, they don't want to stop worshiping the Lord. They're not looking at us, I mean, we've already been here a week. I mean, it's been a week already. 
They're saying, let's do it another week. <laughs> you know, that's how you can tell there's a work of the Spirit of God happening. People aren't caring about you know, time and commitments and their busy lives. And they had busy lives. I mean, this was an agrarian society. These people lived hand to mouth. They worked hard from sun up to sundown just to survive. Very different than probably what most of us here in America live like. These people had to work hard. But when the work of God's spirit happened in their hearts, they weren't overly concerned about those kind of things. What they were top concerned about is, hey, we just want to be with the Lord. Let's seek the Lord. And again, there's something really wonderful when God's spirit starts to move on people's hearts in such a way where they're just excited. Hey, is there there a worship meeting tonight, tomorrow, next night? And just there's just that kind of excitement about wanting to be with God's people, wanting to be in a place of seeking and worshiping the Lord. I just love the the obvious heart condition here. They Another seven days with gladness. They just extended the feast for another week long. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave, it says to the assembly, a thousand bulls, 7,000 sheep, and the leaders gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and 10,000 sheep. That's a big barbecue if you're not picking that up. And a great number of priests sanctified themselves. And the whole assembly of Judah rejoiced and also the priests and the Levites and all the assembly that came from Israel the sojourners who came from the land of Israel and those who dwelt in Judah. So there was great joy, it says, verse 26, in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. And then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard. That is their voice of prayer and intercession for their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place to heaven. Again, there was just something that was happening that it was just uniquely special. And it seems to be that that's what the Holy Spirit here wants us to recognize. As it says here, there was not only great joy and excitement about the Lord, but it says nothing like this had happened in Jerusalem in a long time. And you know, folks, I, I really believe that if there is a move of God's spirit, there will just be a sense of there is something very unique that's happening. And, you know, you look at this passage of scripture and again, what's taking place, the people are eating the Passover meal and they're not really ritualistically prepared. And it's, it's kind of a little bit messy. You know, I mean, it really is. It's not kind of this clean, liturgical, controlled. It it really is something that, you know, they're kind of coloring out of the lines a little bit. But there's just this heart for the Lord. And it's not about all the ritual and rules and requirements. It's about a bunch of people coming ablaze in their heart for the Lord and becoming incited and enthusiastic and passionate about worship and the things of God in such a way where people are going, man, nothing like this has happened in a while. Something special is starting to take place. Something where it says the people, their hearts were inclined towards prayer. And you know, I'll tell you, I would love to see something special like that happen before Jesus returns. I would love one more time, would you not? I mean, 
let me be the first to say, I am sick and tired of talking about, and I mean this in all due respect, talking about the days of the Jesus movement. Oh, well, in the days of the Jesus movement, remember the Jesus movement and all the, what was happening in the 60s and the 70s. You know, there's something really sad when we're most excited about talking about what God did decades ago. The last I checked, the Bible says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he hasn't changed. His heart hasn't changed. His power hasn't changed. The mind of Christ has always still been the mind of Christ. The word of God and all of its power and sufficiency has not changed. We may think, oh, we got all these great new slick techniques and this is what we got to do, this, that, and run the church like a business. And all. Look, the, the word of God has been sufficient since it was first inspired. And it is fully sufficient to do everything God wants to do. The gospel message of salvation and the power of the Holy Spirit has been something that we have had since the days that the church was birthed. And I don't understand fully, as I said earlier, how and why in the ways of God and his sovereignty when a powerful move of a spirit happens and God kind of just blows fresh wind through the sails of the church. But you know what? I want to believe that God can do it. And I want to keep asking the Lord for it. And, and I don't want to always have to be looking in the rearview mirror to be excited about a work of revival. Yeah, maybe they needed revival now. Hello? I think, we need, I think we need it now too. I mean, look at our culture. These are dark days. And, and the only thing we need above everything else is for there to be a powerful move of God. And however God wants to do it, Let's just yield ourselves to it and just let the Lord work. May God give us that longing in our hearts. Why don't we just stand together? It's the